Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if you want to be following along in your Bible, Matthew 22 is pretty much where we're going to be. Matthew 22. Uh, we're going to be talking about this parable that Jesus gives. Uh, before we actually talk about the parable itself, it's important, I think, when you're talking about any biblical, <laughs> biblical text... Um, to try to at least get a sense for the context. Oftentimes, it'll, the context will define for us many of the questions that we may have about a text, like why is this here, or where is this going, or what does this mean, and, uh, or maybe who is hearing this, or what's being said. Right. So before we get into Matthew 22, it's important to know that just before Matthew 22, particularly in Matthew 21, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, which we often call his triumphal entry, right? Like it's the last week of his life. He makes his big entrance into Jerusalem, very intent on his crucifixion, knowing that that's just around the corner. That's Matthew 21 at the very beginning. And so all through Matthew 21, we see Jesus interacting particularly in parables around the temple mount and these parables are often as is matthew 21 is it the case with almost all of them aimed at the chief priests and the scribes and so naturally these parables are uh, demonstrating a lot of negative things um, in matthew 21 we have this parables that talk about the misuse or the abuse of the sons and these tenants that jesus offers and as Jesus is offering these parables, unlike the case so often where people said, what in the world does this mean? The people that are hearing it know exactly what he's saying. And the chief priests and scribes are getting angrier and more frustrated as he's teaching these parables. To the point that in uh, the end of chapter 21, it says that the chief priests, this is verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables they perceived that he was speaking about them and although they were seeking to arrest him they feared the crowds because they had held him to be a prophet so really jesus is instigating his own crucifixion right as he comes into jerusalem he's beginning to really attack the religious leaders in jerusalem around the temple and he's telling them things that are not flattering and he's not just telling it to them he's telling everybody this is the type of people that they are <coughs> And they know it's happening, and so they get frustrated, they get angry, and they're actually seeking to hurt him, to harm him, to arrest him, but they're afraid to do so. So when we get into Matthew 22, which is the parable that we're going to be talking about, know that this is kind of a boiling over, that these people are getting frustrated. They want to harm, they want to arrest, and Jesus doesn't relent. And so Matthew 22 actually is continuing to sort of be an attack on these chief priests and these Pharisees, these scribes. Um, it's important to also know not only that is occurring, right, that Jesus is in his last week. People at these parables are aimed at primarily are getting annoyed, mad. It's also important to know that in Matthew 22, as he discusses this wedding feast, that there is kind of a culture around weddings. Like every, every nation and every time period has kind of a, a culture that surrounds a wedding, right, that might be kind of unique to them. Uh, American culture, uh, the 21st century American culture is one thing for a wedding, right? Um, if you were to go to into a Jewish community, it would be another thing. If you were to go, I mean, modern day Jews would be another thing. If you were to go to 
a China to a wedding, I'm sure it would be different than it is here, just as it would be different if you went to uh, Brazil, right? There would be different traditions, there'd be different expectations, there might even be different clothes, different type of ceremony. And so it's important to understand like the idea of kind of a wedding feast. I think generally we understand the terms wedding and feast, right? And most cultures tend to eat when you celebrate, right? There's like an eating. And so that makes sense to us. But there are some things that when I was reading about this that I didn't know, so I'll share them with you. Um, Some basic facts about uh, weddings in Jesus's day. In Jewish society, apparently the parents were the ones that arranged the wedding, right? We see that uh, still existing in small pockets of cultures, like India does that. Uh, There's traditional weddings would be arranged by the parents of both the groom and the bride. Um, It'd be an arranged marriage, we would call it that. Um, And in Jewish culture, you'd call that um, arrangement, once that arrangement's been made, you'd say they're betrothed, right? And oftentimes what came with that culture was the parents would find another a, a suitor or a suitable mate to help her and they would say all right we like your son or we like your daughter are you interested in our son or daughter whatever the case may be and they would kind of hash that out and they would come to terms and they would say all right this is fitting your family is an honorable one we want, we would be proud to you know kind of unite our families in this way and so let's create a contract a marriage contract and so that we know that this arrangement is going to be pursued and oftentimes there might also be what we would call a dowry a gift that comes along with this exchange you might exchange land or animals or whatever to also uh, kind of gift this this betrothal and so in Jewish society that's the way the parents handled it and so the bride and the groom actually typically wouldn't meet Um, really until the contract was signed. It was uh, not atypical for them to meet the first time at the contract signing. Um, And so this really would reflect trust in the parents. And so the couple was actually considered married from the time that this contract was signed. Like soon as the parents reached an agreement and the contract actually all gather and the contracts are signed, that's actually you're married in Jewish culture, right? And that's where we get this term. We see this with Mary and Joseph. When Jesus is born, they're betrothed, but they're not yet like married in the sense that they're living together. This is probably the phase that they were in. The contract had been signed. Their families had come together, but they weren't living together yet. And so in Jewish culture, actually, once the contract's signed, you don't live together. Um, That's actually when the man, the, the groom, goes and prepares the home for the wife for the betrothed and so he would go get his estate in order make sure everything is is prepared as can be before the actual wedding ceremony so even though they're betrothed they're not in the fullest sense married and so uh he would go and it would take some time to do that i'm sure that that would take weeks or months to kind of get everything prepared and then once it was all prepared people would receive an invitation to a wedding feast which was like the formal celebration of like finally the betrothed they're coming together to be married to live as husband and wife and so that's the context um that jesus is like hitting on when he offers this parable and so that's important for a few things um and we'll talk about why it matters in the story but that is kind of the context some basic facts about um jewish 
or Israelite, you might even say, uh, wedding ceremonies and the culture around it. And so the marriage ceremony would take place, the wedding banquet would follow, and the banquet oftentimes would, I mean, not oftentimes, but was not uncommon for it to last up to a week. There'd be like this day in, day out banqueting and celebrating, because I imagine people are traveling from far, and so you would accommodate them and have a long feast. And so in Jewish culture, actually, I think this wedding banquet, this, this days of feasting was kind of like the highlight of your social calendar. You know, there's not a whole lot to uh, aspire to socially than to be invited to a wedding banquet. I mean, that's that's like the big deal, right? And so that's a little bit about the the society, the culture around weddings in the Jewish time period. And I'm sure that's not everything. I'm sure there's some details that I don't know, but that's the gist of it. And that's helpful as we, we look at the parable. So the parable of the wedding feast, and you can call it whatever you want to call it. That's how I'm going to refer to it. Um, I think it's important when we also talk about parables to kind of figure out the purpose of the parable before we start diving into the details of it. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I often struggle with parables because a lot of it's figures and allegories and imagery. And so, you know, sometimes if you dive deep into the details of the imagery, it seems to be teaching one thing when clearly the outcome of the parable seems to be another. And so it can be difficult to figure out, okay, what, what am I supposed to interpret from the parable and what am I not? How deeply am I to look into it? And when am I not to look too deeply into it? You know, because obviously as a figure, when we tell stories and we try to give an example, we often offer caveats like, well, it's not exactly the same because this and this and this. But like you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. That's kind of a parable. Every detail of a parable isn't pertinent to the moral of it, but generally offers a perspective, right? And so it's really important for us to see if we can... What is the purpose of the parable before we do a deep dive into the details? Look in verse 2 of chapter 22. I'm just going to read from verse 1, but verse 2 is what I want to get to. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. All right, so from this verse, we know that Jesus is going to tell a parable, which may involve any number of details. But the point is, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Right, so everything that we hear about in this parable is some reflection or truth about the kingdom of heaven. Right? So if I try to make an application to, say, finances, you know, like, well, that's not really the point of this parable, right? And so that's what I mean by sometimes we can be like, well, this is a good lesson about this or that. Well, that wasn't the point of that parable, right? So we know we're looking at the kingdom of heaven is compared to this. And then actually when you skip to the end, the very last verse in verse uh, 14 there, we learn really the purpose of this parable. And it says, for many are called, few are chosen. All right, so now we, we see like what we're looking at is the kingdom of heaven. And the point of the whole parable is to get us to understand that truth, right? For many are called and few are chosen. So it's kind of all the details are sandwiched between those two things. So everything that we look at in this parable is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven and eventually funneling us into the truth of verse 14 that many are called and few are chosen. Right. 
So I want to talk about the parable in light of that. What is Jesus telling us about the kingdom of heaven? And why is it that many are called and few are chosen? And that's what the parable is revealing, right? The parable is revealing that. So let's see what we learn from this. Um, let's talk about the, the details of the actual parable so that we can talk about the lessons from it. In verse 3, we see that in this parable there is a wedding feast for a prince, the king's son. And so the king wants to, to invite the guests. And remember that in their culture, they're married. This has been planned for a long time. The wedding banquet is not a last-minute preparation, right? So you would know for a long time if you were an invitee once the banquet was going to occur, right? And so it's finally time for the banquet to occur. And so the king sends out his uh, guests and in, as servants to invite his guests. But in verse 3, we also see that they're unwilling to come. So in verses 4 through 6, the king sends out servants yet again. And uh, he brings an, they bring an announcement of the feast. And this time it says that they are ignored. And even in these verses, it says that they're harmed. Um, they were treated shamefully, and then ultimately even some are killed. And so uh, the king here has a decision to make because he's already sent servants a first time and a second time and seem, things seem to be getting worse. And so the king becomes angry, and this is in verses 7 and 8, and he sends his armies to destroy those who rejected the invitation. And he declares them unworthy. And it's not in this declaration he's not just destroying them. It's like he's also destroying their cities. Um, and so he's like just totally like wiping them their families like their influence in their area i mean it's just like a total devastation because they refused the king's invitation and so ultimately that's what happens and so uh after you pick up in verse 8 uh verse 10 says that those servants go out into the roads upon the king's command and they basically just start inviting anybody who will listen and who will come right because the king is he wants his banquet hall filled. He wants to have the feast for his son who's, who's getting married. And we know that as you continue to read uh, this, people do come. They do come. And uh, it's not <laughs> the original invitees. And I assume the first wave and the second wave of invitees are probably the same, judging by the response. So it's not the first group. It's all these other people that probably weren't expecting to be invited. Um, they get invited and they come. But the king starts walking around the banquet uh, in verse 11, and he's seeing the guests. He notices one guy who's inappropriately dressed. He's not in wedding attire. And so when he approaches him, he's like, hey, friend, how did you get in here without uh, a wedding garment or wedding clothes, right? And the guy doesn't really give him an answer. He just kind of is like uh, speechless, right? And so the king ends up telling his servants or his uh, attendees, some translations say, and they, he says, you know, bind him up hand and foot and get him out of here. Take him to the place, the outer darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And that's when Jesus tells us the purpose of the parable, right? To funnel us into that truth. And so those are the details. You have servants sent out. They're sent out again. 
and some of them are killed. The king gets angry, wipes them out, invites new guests. They come and notices one guy who's not dressed right. And he gets rid of him. So, like, what are the lessons of this parable? Okay, so this is supposed to be reflecting something about the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, we're supposed to see that a lot of people are called and only a few actually are chosen. Well, I want to suggest to you a few lessons that I learned from this, and there are more. Uh, in fact, I uh, shared this lesson just this Wednesday up, up at another group, and people were coming up to me afterwards and being like, oh, this is another lesson that I thought of. And I was like, man, that's great. And then I'd have someone. So there's a lot more to this parable than what I'm going to suggest to you, but hopefully this gets you thinking about the kingdom of heaven and why is it that many are called but only a few are chosen. So I'm sure you'll have even more thoughts about this as we go along. But what should you and I learn from this parable? I'm going to suggest a few things. One, um, that God, right, is kind of being represented by the king here. I hope we see that. I hope we would understand that, you know, God's son, we would think, oh, well, that's got to be Jesus, right? So there's kind of this picture of the kingdom of heaven is really like represented in this parable as a feast, a feast on behalf of the son, right? And the father wants a lot of people to know about that. He wants people to come to that. And so I think we need to learn the lesson here that God intends for a feast uh, for his son to be an invitation. That there is an invitation and that it's for the glory and the feasting and the celebration with the son. As Christians, as disciples, um, for those of you here that are that, don't you know that to be true? Like, to follow God is to, to celebrate Jesus, is to, to, in a sense, feast and to dine and to be close to Jesus. I couldn't begin to list out in this lesson. We wouldn't have time for it, and I just didn't. Like, I couldn't find all of them. The ways that this kind of language is used about being with God or even specifically being with Jesus. But, I mean, today, I'll give you one instance. Today, didn't we gather um, to remember and to celebrate Jesus? I mean, isn't that really what Sundays are about? Is to, to gather with other people who appreciate and want to glorify God the Father and Jesus the Son. That sounds a lot like to me what a wedding feast would sort of be about. An invitation to celebrate and give glory to not just the parents who have found a spouse for the son, but also the son who now has um, a wife. You know, There's a lot of celebration, there's a lot of honor and glory that comes in that kind of thing. There's also a sense in which, and we're going to talk about this in a later point, that there's a, a feast that's going on. One way I think maybe that we think about it, um, we'll talk about here in a moment, is this Lord's Supper is sort of a feast that we partake of. And so one point that I want us to bring about is the kingdom of heaven is like, right, according to this parable, um, a feast where there's an invitation to celebrate the Son. And hopefully, as Christians, we see the truth in that. To be a part of God's kingdom, we certainly celebrate the Son, and we're invited to that uh, communion. Right? 
But also, I want us to see uh, a couple of other things. You know how Jesus, uh, all through, I think it's in most of the Gospels, but John particularly highlights this. He talks about Jesus talking about the crucifixion as his hour of glory. He mentions that several times throughout the book of John. John 12 says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so, you know, Jesus even understood in his day that something that on one hand was terrible and shameful and sad and somber was also glorious and celebratory. And so that, in a sense, is what the kingdom of heaven is inviting to, is this celebration of the Son. That Jesus even called it his glory, right? All right, so the second thing that I want to highlight is we talked a little bit about the king and the son and maybe a little bit about the nature and the, of the invitation and the feast, the spiritual truths that those represent. We'll come back to those. But what about the servants and the invitees? You know, there should be something to learn about that. And what I was thinking about in this is um, if the king is sort of like the father and the son here is sort of like Jesus in this parable about the kingdom of heaven, then... I guess there's a sense in which any one of us could be an invitee, right? Um, we just have to figure out, like, what what wave of guests are we? Like, am I wave number one that gets an invite and gets an invite and eventually just keeps refusing and so God's like, I'm done with you? Or am I one that is surprised to get an invite and happily obliges, Right? Or am I one that is surprised to get an invite, happily obliges, but doesn't come appropriately? Doesn't actually change for the occasion. Let's, uh, the point that I think I see in that is this invite, I think in many ways, for the kingdom of heaven, we would call that the gospel, right? Like, hey, good news, you're invited to the feast of the king and the son. That sounds a lot to me like what we would say. That's the gospel. That's the invitation, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, Am I going to be like that first wave? And I would categorize them as indifferent. You know, they had a standing invite that they know, had known was going to come. And when it finally came, they just, ah, it's not important enough. Luke 14 tells a parallel parable to this. I think it was a, a lot of the details are the same. I think it's a slightly different parable, but a lot of the details are the same. And Luke 14 really highlights the excuses people give. When the king comes with this invite, some people are like, ah, I got to tend to the land. Uh, I just got married. I have responsibilities at home. Matthew 22 doesn't focus on those, but the idea is that these people, for whatever reasons, they ultimately don't value it enough to be invited to the king's feast. And so we would call that indifference. Like if I have one thing and I have another and I choose this other thing, then this one wasn't as important, right? By nature, like the, I made a decision, and that's what they're doing. So essentially, they're kind of indifferent. They're demeaning or devaluing the invitation. The second group, or maybe the other part of the first group, that actually harms the servants that come back the second time, they shame them and they harm them. I would say they're antagonistic. You know, at first, they're kind of like, mm, no thanks. So are you sure you don't want to come? And they kill off the king's servants. So, you know, maybe some of us struggle with indifference to the invitation of the king, the gospel. 
you know, maybe some of us have been or are even antagonistic uh, or um, opposed to that invitation more strongly than just being indifferent. And maybe finally, uh, there might be some of us who, you know, we, we are excited to accept the invitation, um, but we don't actually change once, once we get that invitation. That, that one guy that the king's walking around, and he's, he's, he says nothing else about all these, like, raggedy guests that end up coming in. Because actually the text tells us that when he invites all of these people that were never really intended to be invited in the first place, in a sense, verse 10, they go out to the roads, they gather all whom they found. And notice here it says both bad and good. Like, this is kind of a mixed multitude of people. So when the king is walking around, you know, it's kind of a raggedy bunch. Like some have been bad, some are good, but only one person came unprepared, right? Only one person, it seems to, has come unchanged by the invitation, right? They might have been bad and good or whatever on the road, but it seems like they all put on the right clothes, except for one person. So the point in all this is, those that are indifferent to the gospel, those that are antagonistic to the gospel, those that are unchanged by the gospel all end up sharing the same fate. They don't get to be a part of the feast, the banquet of the Lord, of the king and his son. You know, that last guy who's not wearing the right clothes, he gets tossed out. Like the moment that's discovered, he's, he's not a part of it anymore. The people before, they're wiped out, they're killed, right? So the lesson for me, when I look at this, I'm learning about the kingdom of heaven, and ultimately many are called and few are chosen. Why is that? Because I can't, those who are indifferent, those who are antagonistic, and those who are unchanged by the invitation of the king don't, don't get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's an important lesson for us to learn. I would hope, and I suspect, that almost all of us here today are not in those camps. I would hope and pray that that's true, that you're not indifferent, you're antagonistic, or unchanged. But it's possible, just because you're here today doesn't mean that you're not unchanged by the gospel. Just because you're here today doesn't mean that you're inherently not indifferent. You know, There's a lot of reasons people do religious things that don't involve the heart or a change of character. And so I'd hope you're not in that camp because Jesus is telling us you're part of maybe the many that are not chosen if you find yourself associated with these types of people. Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 9 through 11. You can turn there or you can just listen as I read it. It says this, Therefore God exalted him, being Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That teaching tells us, it's certainly not a part of this parable, but that teaching tells us that there will be a day that people that are different, that have been antagonistic, that maybe were unchanged, are going to realize their missed opportunity. They're going to have to confess that they missed out on the banquet feast, so to speak, of the king for the son. I imagine there are going to be people who won't acknowledge that. They don't care um, in the moment or maybe through the rest of their lives. They never acknowledge 
their physical lives, they never acknowledge that they missed out on a great opportunity. Right? But there will be a day that Philippians 2 describes that everybody's put before that king and comes face to face with the reality of the opportunity that they squandered. And so I'd hope that would be none of us. Another lesson that I learned from this parable is that the kingdom of heaven actually is an open invitation. I think there's a lot of direct historical meaning for this parable. To me, the first group sounds a lot like the Jews. They should have expected an invitation. They should have known it was coming. And then when it finally came, they're like, eh, not for me, right? A lot of Jews rejected Jesus, the Messiah, right? And it sounds a lot like, I mean, you could go on and on about historical things. The destruction of their, the Jews and their city sounds a lot like Jerusalem and what happens a little bit later. Um, and then the open invitation to anyone who would come through the Gentiles. We see that in Acts. I mean, it sounds a lot like historical things, but to broaden it to just generalizations and principles about the gospel is we see that the kingdom of heaven ends up being an open invitation. There's no select party. There's no VIPs. The king has opened it up to all bad and good, as verse 10 says. And all you have to do is heed the invitation, right? And show up changed. Show up the way you need to show up for the wedding feast. Um, if you're not too busy or too indifferent or too opposed, then you're welcome. That's what this parable is showing us. 1 Corinthians 1, I'll read these verses, says this. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now, the point of this text is the Corinthians had trouble boasting, dividing over false pretenses and things they valued. But that tells me as well that the truth of verse 10, God's choosing the people that are both bad and good, that maybe didn't feel important. But those are the people that were honored by the invitation, right? They're the people that don't say, I'm too busy or too good for this. I can put it off or I'll ignore it. They're the people that come. And that's why God chooses them, I believe. That ultimately, right at the end of 1 Corinthians there, it says that no man may boast before God. There's no one at that wedding feast that probably in this parable is saying, I deserve to be here. You know? And so that's an important lesson about the kingdom of heaven is that it's an open invitation, but the invitation is only going to appeal to those who realize the significance of the invite, right? And finally, as far as applications that I see from this parable, is that even though there is an open invitation, and I believe that's what Jesus is teaching for those that are willing to hear it, uh, there are expectations. And that's what that last guy really illustrates for us, right? You can't just be invited and not expect to change upon coming. Now, it's illustrated in this parable by like a change of garments, of clothes. But doesn't the Bible talk about clothes as kind of the symbolic change we all go through, being invited to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? Um, there's so many texts that talk about this. Uh, 
I'm not going to read a bunch of them, but one of the texts that I noticed uh, that sounds like this to me is Revelation 3 when Jesus is writing these letters to these churches. He gets to Sardis, and in verse 18 he says, I advise you to buy from me, this is Jesus speaking, gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So many texts in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, talk about when you become a Christian, when you heed this invitation, you've been clothed with something spiritual and new. right? Not that we literally change into white robes, but that's the idea. And Jesus is telling Sardis their problem was that they actually hadn't allowed God to change them like they were looking somewhere else not to Jesus and Jesus is saying like look to me buy the things that you need from me not from elsewhere the parable is saying the same thing if this guy had come changed like if he had heeded the invitation but then changed he would have been allowed to keep being a part of the banquet right and so we need to not make the same mistake the kingdom of God ultimately, this is my last application, is should be viewed as, and Jesus teaches it this way, as a feast. Oftentimes we don't feel like it's a feast because there's difficulty and there's changing and the reality that Jesus talks about as being a disciple. There's difficulties that come with that. But always, always, the portrait is that ultimately it's for the best. It's for an abundance. It's for every spiritual blessing. It is a feast. God's people historically have understood this. I want to read Isaiah 55 in its whole, and then we'll basically be done. Isaiah 55, if you want to follow along, it's a longer reading, so that might be helpful. Listen to the language that's used in Isaiah 55. That's feast-like language. And then particularly at the end of Isaiah 55, listen to... um, words that kind of like language that sounds like invitational okay starts that way and ends that way come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and why do you labor for that which does not satisfy listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I will make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you don't know, and a nation that you don't know uh, shall run to you, shall know you and shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall, be, uh, shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The language of Isaiah 55, I think, is pointing towards like this ultimate gospel call. You see this one that's going to be appointed, that's going to bring an everlasting covenant, that's going to come in the line of David, who's going to be a commander and a leader for the people. That's Jesus. And in this picture of like all that's going to be happening around this one is those who are thirsty can drink. Those who are hungry can eat. There's no cost. There's abundance. That God is going to be compassionate, that he'll be among them, that he'll be there. But notice at the very end here, in verses 10 kind of uh, through 13, the language of this is just like water like comes and produces something, like you see its result, making things sprout and bloom and grow. God's committing and promising that his words are going to do the same thing. Like he's going to send his words out and they're not going to come back empty. In Matthew 22, the problem with the first group was that the king's word went out through his servants and it came back empty. Like there was no one responding to the invitation. And so God says, one more try. And then he, he wipes them out. But God's promise holds true because he sends it out again. And what does he get? A bunch of people, a bunch of uh people who join in a banquet and he ends up walking and seeing all these people who came didn't buy they didn't purchase and they're eating and they're drinking and they're celebrating with the king and his son and his word came back with fruit it came back with people responding to it and so they go out in joy and they're led in peace Um, and so i think it's important for us to see that the invitation of the lord the gospel really is about a feast We need to view God as abundantly providing what we want and we need at no cost. Now, we've been talking all year about discipleship and the the, sort of the costs that come with that. And Isaiah 55 isn't demeaning those, but like we can't buy what God's offering. And so the point is not that there won't be challenges to being a part of the kingdom of heaven. The point is what we're getting is abundantly valuable at essentially no cost. There's no buying into it, right? It's offered to us freely. So um, I think it's interesting that Revelation 19 uses the same sort of language, but more specifically, uh, verses 6 through 9, this is it. This is where we're stopping. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There's a lot of, uh, debate on maybe like every in and out detail of revelation but in revelation 19 it's pretty clear god's inviting people to a feast specifically 
what we know is true about this feast is it's really about the lamb, Jesus, and how he's going to be married to this bride. And we know that this bride is clothed in such a way that the righteous deeds of the saints are the thing that is just adorning her. Um, Do you want to be a part of that feast? It seems like God's people are a big reason for the feast in Revelation 19. And so the question is, are you going to heed the invitation or are you going to make the mistake that the indifferent, antagonistic, unchanged people make? I would hope that's not the case. So I hope this lesson has been helpful for you. I pray that it's been a useful one to explore a parable of Jesus and see why it matters to us. Because indeed, there are many called. An invite goes out to anyone, but only a few people seem to take that invite seriously. And so I'd hope in the great big world that everyone in this room would be part of that. those that are chosen. Think about that while we're singing this song. If there are any needs that you may have spiritually, this is your time to to get right um, with your brothers. If you need to make something right, this is a time to repent if the Lord sees something wrong in your life. So take that opportunity now while we stand and sing.